humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. How are you all? <laughs> Happy Saturday to you. And no, this is not a pre-recorded show. This is a live show. Um, for uh, the next couple of Saturdays, you're going to have me live. Uh, so note that on your calendar, of course. And I am just thrilled to be here. So because it's live, you can call me at 952-946-6205. I would love to talk to you. I love talking to my listeners. Um, And I'm happy to talk with you about whatever you want to talk. But we've got a great show. Uh, Since it's live, um, you know, it's... uh, I don't have a I don't have a big interview today, but don't worry, I'll keep you I'll keep your interest. It's a we've got a hodgepodge of many things: sports, uh, butterflies, uh, Minnesota's first black lawyer, uh, some perspective on what it means to be Jewish in America, and uh, an update on uh, my work as a hopeless idealist, as somebody trying to make a difference in America. I would also note that this this month, February, is Black History Month. And we're going to start out with a a story about a black idealist that's just breaking across all of the news right now. Um, And I'm talking about Brian Flores, the former head coach for the Miami Dolphins who landed on America's uh, collective social conscience this week. And he landed with a thud. And he is our featured idealist for the week. He filed a class action lawsuit against the National Football League and three NFL teams alleging racial discrimination this week, and he has um, created quite a stir. Um, I will get to the lawsuit in a second, but first let me give you some background on this man named Brian Flores. To begin, Brian Flores was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1981 to parents who were Honduran immigrants. He graduated from a prep school in Brooklyn, so he had a little bit of a leg up, and he went on to attend Boston College. Those of you who know me and maybe have read my memoir, you know I'm a graduate of Boston College Law School. He went to the undergrad at Boston College, and he played football as a linebacker with with hopes to eventually play in the NFL. But unfortunately, he was injured while playing for B.C., which meant he's not going to, he was not going to be able to play for the NFL, but he pivoted, and at the age of 23, Flores joined the New England Patriots as a scouting agent. Eventually, he worked his way up the Patriots' coaching ladder to being the team's defensive coordinator, although, interestingly, he was never actually given the title of defensive coordinator, even though he was doing the job. Think about that. Throughout the 15 years that Brian Flores was with the New New England Patriots, the Patriots won uh, several Super Bowl champions. In February 2019, um, at the age of 36, uh, Brian Flores got his big break, and he was hired by the Miami Dolphins to be its head coach with a five-year contract. He held that position for three seasons and accumulated a 24 win 25 loss record. I would note that he inherited a losing team when he started with them. But two of the three years that Brian Flores was with the team, he had winning years. The most two recent years, he was a winning, he had winning seasons. But still, a month ago, on January 10th, uh, the Dolphins announced that they were firing Brian Flores. And this was considered a surprise move 
with Flores in part because not only because he had a winning he's had two years of winning teams but because he had two years left in his contract at about the same time uh, last in January last month you may recall that there were a flurry of other NFL teams announcing that their head coaches were going including our um, own very truly uh, Vikings um, who lost uh, who uh, fired Zimmer one of the teams in need of a new head coach, so because they're firing head coaches, so then they're searching for head coaches. One of the new teams looking for a head coach was the New York Giants. And it turns out that the New York Giants was one of Brian Flory's most favorite football teams because he grew up in Brooklyn. So he loved the Giants. The Giants reached out to interview Brian Flores, and they set a date for the interview. So you know everyone, you know the, ordinarily the way that it works with you know how we do uh, interviews is you know you 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 set a date for it and then you know you then the, the candidate gets ready for that interview and you you know you set it down and you we're going to interview you know in a week or two weeks or whatever as they set the date for Brian Flores' interview which was going to be less than a week after they set it. At this point, let me <clears throat> explain about and interject about the historical problems that the NFL has had around skin color. In a sport in which its players are predominantly black, I believe that as of the 2022 season, 70% of NFL players were black or brown or otherwise diverse. There are only, okay, only two diverse owners of NFL teams. There are 32 teams. So there are only less than 10% of the NFL teams are owned by diverse people. And neither of those diverse people is black. On top of that, um, on top of that, Brian Flores firing from the Miami Dolphins left the NFL with only three diverse coaches. Again, out of 32 teams. One black coach remains, one Latino coach remains, and one Muslim Arab American coach remains. Again, this is in a sport with 70% of its players being diverse. And uh, note that it wasn't until 1989 that the NFL actually had its first black coach, um, Art Shell. Just note that. That would be, you know, not all that long ago, just 32 years ago. To deal with the dearth of diverse head coaches in 2003, the NFL, so we're going to go back, 2003, nearly 20 years ago, 19 years ago, the NFL adopted what was called the Rooney Rule, which, re- which requires that teams interview diverse candidates for head coaching jobs. So in theory, if you've got a head coaching job, in theory, what you have to do, okay, is you've got you to gotta reach out and you've got to make sure that you, among the candidates that you're interviewing, you've got diverse candidates, okay? And while that has resulted in a number of diverse coaches um, for coordinating coach roles. So you've got the head coach and then you've got coaches like for the front line, coaches for the def- defensive line, coaches for the special teams. So the Rooney rule has helped increase the number of diverse coaches in those lesser uh, roles and positions. Um, today, after Brian Flores was fired, there's still only one black head coach. And this is where you start to deal with structural systems that favor white color skin over that of other skin colors. It's just the reality. It don't – we could have a long discussion. But that's – we have a system in America 
where white color skin is favored, not only in sports but in a variety of other things. Just saying. It's true. It doesn't mean all everyone's racist, okay? It just means we we are set up that way. All right, with all not that that's okay by any means. With all of that background, let's get back to Brian Flores. Okay. As I said, he was set to interview with the New York Giants with an interview date of January twenty seventh. That interview was set up on January 23rd. So you've got 23rd. Hey, we're going to interview you. Okay, we'll interview you four days from now on the 27th. Flores gets excited about the prospect of possibly coaching the New York Giants, you know, his favorite team. However, within hours of setting up the Giants interview, so we're still talking back on January 23rd, Brian Flores gets a text from Bill Belichick. His old, his old boss, the head coach of the New England Patriots. And in that text, Belichick um, wrote, Buffalo uh, and uh, NYG say that you are their guy, unquote. Okay? Now, that text was odd. Now, I mean, it was nice of Belichick to reach out and say, hey, you got the job. It looks like you're, the, you're their person. The problem is uh, Flores had nothing to do with Buffalo, the Buffalo Bills, had nothing to do with him. But as it turns out, there was another Brian, okay? So we're talking about Brian Flores here. But there was another Brian, another coach named Brian in search of a head coach job. His name was Brian Dossel. And he had been the offensive coordinator for the Buffalo Bills, Brian, maybe it's Dobble, sorry. Brian Dobble um, is white, okay? And seeing the text, okay, Brian Flores, okay, he, he wrote back to Bilicek and he, he said, do you, got the, do you think you have the right guy, Bill? And in response, Bilicek texted back and said, uh-oh, I screwed up. He had the wrong Brian. Brian Dobble was the guy for the Giants. He was the guy that Bilicek had heard that the Giants were going to hire. Um, so think about this. You have a rule that says you must interview minority candidates for head coaching jobs. But before that, you do that, you actually go out and you hire a white guy. But you hold off announcing to the world about that until you interview a diverse candidate, okay, in order to comply with the Rooney Rule. Um, this is what's called a sham interview. It is. Um, and, and by the way, for Brian Flores, he believes this wasn't the only time he ever went through a sham interview because he believes it also happened several years ago when he was searching for a head job um, with the Denver Broncos. And he, cla- and he claims um, he had an early morning interview with, Den- uh, with Denver Broncos executives, in- including John Elway. Um, and he says that they came in hungover uh, from a night of partying, and uh, the interview was, as far as Flores was concerned, looked like it was just perfunctory and um, not real. But he didn't. But Flores didn't do anything about that with the Broncos. He didn't do anything about that with the Broncos. He just went on and just because a, a lot of diverse people are taught not to not to stir up the water. All right. Okay. So. 
Um, after Brian Flores received Bill Belichick's text saying, hey, you got the job, you know, look, say you're the guy, except it was the wrong Brian. After that, Brian Flores said, I've had enough. And he went and he contacted the same law firm that represented numerous women who sued Harvey Weinstein for sexual assaults. Remember the hashtag Me Too movement? It's that law, law firm. And then this week, they filed, that law firm filed a 58-page lawsuit, a class action against the NFL, against the, the, um, the Broncos, against the New York Giants, against the, and against the Miami Dolphins, uh, claiming, uh, as I said, about sham lawsuits, claiming about discrimination. Um, but I should note that the NFL and the three football teams, they deny the allegations in that, in that lawsuit. They deny it and it's, um, we'll see where that lawsuit goes. It's about alleging a pattern of racial discrimination in the NFL by those teams. It's a class action. They're trying to – what that means is they're going to try and list other um, black um, uh, coaches at the lower level and the head coach in the NFL – and either present or former to see if they will join the lawsuit. Stay tuned. We'll see how that goes, okay? But I want to note here, Brian Flores is going to turn 42 next month. In a perfect world, he's got another 30 years of coaching in the NFL. He is putting all of that at risk right now. All of it. Think of Colin Kaepernick who is considered one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And once he started going down on his knee during the national anthem, he never played ever again. Think about that. Now, why is Brian Flores an idealist? Well, first of all, he's darn brave. But in a statement uh, after the lawsuit was filed, Brian Flores said this, quote, I may be risking coaching the game that I love and that this has done so much for my family and me. My sincere hope is that by standing up against systemic racism in the NFL, others will join me to ensure that positive change is made for generations to come. Unquote. If you've seen him on TV interviewing, you will, you will see that he immediately starts talking about he's got a couple of kids and then he starts talking about other kids. That's why he's doing this, to try and change things so they don't have to encounter um, the, the racism, the hurdles that he and other black people in the NFL have now encountered. Now, that in my book is idealism. And Brian Flores, my listeners, is quite the idealist. So... All right. Well, there you go. That gives you our uh, uh, I- featured idealist of the week. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I've got other things to talk with you about. But I would love to talk to you. 952-946-6205. You listen to me, Ellie Krug, on AM 950. And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio and lovely AM 950. Speaking to you from the bunker in Eden Prairie. How are you all? How are you all? 
Um, Brian Flores, pay attention to what's going on with that lawsuit because um, I think it's going to make a big difference in the NFL. I do. I do. And it's unfortunate um, that people have to resort to attorneys, to the law. We can only hope the law continues to um, work. (laughs) All right. Well, listen, um, an inside uh, tip about this uh, show. Um, This is not my main profession. I got many other things going on. I'm a writer. I'm a trainer and speaker on diversity and inclusion, as many of you know. And and, uh, so to, to... do this show is on top of all of that. I wish it was the other way around because I really wonder how great we could make this show if um, I had the time for it, like that it really deserves. Not that I mean, you're all valuable, my listeners. Don't under, don't miss, don't um, get that wrong. But I will tell you, I miss things. So last month, last week, not the week that just preceded today, but the week before that was Holocaust uh, Remembrance Day. It was on January 27th, and I missed it. Um, but that's not going to keep me from talking about the Holocaust and talking about um, what's going on in America relative to Jews. Okay. So let me begin by telling you a very quick story. I um, uh, I just alluded to it that I went to law school in Boston, at Boston College Law School. I graduated and then to my very first five years of practicing as a lawyer were in downtown Boston. I cut my trial teeth in federal and state court. In Boston, what a place and what a way to do it. But one day, and I can't tell you what year it was, I can't even tell you exactly where I was, but I was in an elevator with an older woman. And uh, there must have been some other people um, in the elevator as well. I don't specifically remember, but I know there was an older woman. I couldn't describe her other than that she was shorter. I think that she had white hair. And I remember um, she needed to – she reached out to touch the button on the elevator. And when she did that, I looked down and I saw on the inside of this woman's arm was a tattoo with numbers. She was a survivor of the camps. I didn't say anything to her. But in that moment, my heart broke. The survivors are, you know, getting fewer and fewer every year. But the attacks on Jews, um, the attacks on Jews in America, anti-Semitism is certainly on the rise. Now, I I have a friend, a dear friend who is a Jewish. She's in New Jersey. And she has been sending me, um, you know, uh, emails and uh, uh, notices from her synagogue about active shooter drills about pol- you know police coming and and um giving them talks about safety um there is a jewish uh organ- safety organization that is overseeing trying to oversee all of the synagogues in the country they have come and spoken they have 
armed guards when they have their services. Um, there's a blast wall outside their synagogue in New Jersey. And she asked me, right, rightfully so, how many other religions in America right now have to go through all of that? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to also bet that there are a number of mosques in America that have to do this. But for our Christian um, friends, I mean, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a, seen a blast wall or armed security at a Catholic church or a Lutheran church. And so, you know, um, think about that. According to the Anti-Defamation League, okay, uh, last year there were 2,100 acts of assault, vandalism, or harassment of Jewish people. It's a 12% increase over the prior year. It's the highest level of anti-Semitic incidents since the Anti-Defamation League began to collect that data in 1979. Um, here's some other data for you. One in four American Jews say they've been targeted, the targets of anti-Semitism in the last 12 months. Four in 10 American Jews have changed their behavior out of fear because of that. Um, I mean, again, how four out of 10 of all Americans have per- personally witnessed anti-Semitic incidents. Um, and 82% of American Jews say anti-Semitism has risen over the last five years, where only 44% of the general public believes that to be the case. So American Jews are, are, are feeling it and facing it and undergoing it. And uh, um, this is all part of the othering that is happening in our country just generally. But again, I ask you, I mean, my... Those of you who go to church, you know, are Christian, when's the last time you went through an active shooter drill at your church? Just think about that. Or had an armed guard. I mean, visible armed guard. Or do you even have security cameras and locked doors? Just, we need to understand this. We need to understand what's going on in America. And I know many of you do, and I'm trying to be condescending about that, but we just do. Okay. All right. Well, listen, when we come back from our break, um, I've got more stuff to share with you, okay? You're listening to me, Ellie Krug. If you like what you hear, visit me on my website at elliekrug.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ellie Krug, and uh, we'll be back in a sec. Thanks. Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950. I have, uh, it looks like maybe 20 minutes left. And if you want to call and talk to me, I would love that um, because I love hearing from my listeners. 952-946-6205. I will take any topic you want to talk about. I will. Okay. You can ask me anything. All right. Just be great to hear from you. Okay. But short of that, I'll continue. All right, so uh, I've got a hodgepodge here. You ready? 
Florida. <laughs> Do I need to say anything else? Florida. I mean, right now with as cold as it is here in Minnesota, yeah, I mean, there's some people like, oh, Florida, it's nice. Um, yeah, weather-wise, but boy, <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on in Florida right now. And one of those is an effort by the Florida legislature led by Governor DeSantis to shut down education as it relates to America's history of enslaving humans and of doing other things that marginalize people. There is in the uh, uh, House, uh, Florida House, a bill titled the Stop Woke Act. It's uh, t- that acronym is for Stop Wrongs Against Our Kids and Employees Act. And what this law would do, and I have no doubt this law is going to pass, and I have no doubt that this law will become a model for other states. Uh, the bill um, seeks to prevent workers or students from being s- subject to training or instruction that, quote, compels them to believe. Um, a slew of ideas spilled out in the bill. For example, the bill um, deals not only with schools but also with the workplace. This is what makes this bill incredibly troublesome and dangerous is because now Florida is attempting to legislate what private employers can do relative to making their workforce more diverse, making it more inclusive. And the way that you do that in part is through training and speaking. By the way, that is my living. I just want you to know that. And yes, I have spoken and trained um, in Florida, Florida businesses. But what they, what this law would do, okay, is it, it would make, it would deem discriminatory any kind of training uh, session that would lead an employee to Bear, believe that they bear, quote, responsibility for or should be discriminated against, unquote, because of, quote, actions committed in the past, unquote, by people of the same race or sex. In other words, you know, if, if we start talking about what's hap- what America did and maybe continues to do with people who are not white in skin color and it makes people – it's going to make white color people for the most part uncomfortable, uh, you can't do it, Okay. And um, it also, uh, you know, the standard uh, against uh, critical race theory that it prohibits uh, teaching or instructing on any concepts about being inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. In other words, we can, you just can't talk about how humans treat each other when it comes to skin color and maybe, you know, country of birth and, and ethnicity in other ways. Now, <laughs> that's just... Uh, I have no doubt that this is going to pass, but that's not without um, without people trying to stop it. So there is a um, there is a, a representative in the Florida House by the name of uh, Kevin Chambliss. Kevin Chambliss is uh, uh, thir- thirty two years old. Uh, no, he'd be thirty two years old. He was elected to the Florida House of Representatives in twenty twenty. So he's in he's in uh, up for reelection. And uh, they were debating this bill in the Florida House uh, recently, and Kevin Chambliss was going to have none of it. And I'm going to play a snippet for you right now, or Dan will, my wonderful producer, of what Kevin Chambliss was not going to have any of. Go ahead. You would literally put 
every public school history teacher out of business because you can't teach history without discomfort. It is not possible to say that it is possible that you didn't, maybe you didn't pay attention to Western civilization, maybe you didn't pay attention to your history class, but humans have flaws. We do things that are bad. We have done things that are bad. So, uh, and, and, and understand that I completely disagree with the whole racial colorblindness. Like, that's insane. Right, but Chambliss? I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm winding down, sir, because that's an insult to my being, not my intelligence, my being. But the idea that this could ever be measured, that this legislation could ever be implemented in a real way, guys... I just, I cannot believe, and then the, the, the what is the name of the bill? What, what is this, like the, the Freedom Act? Like, freedom without truth and justice, guys, is complete anarchy. We must have truth, and in order Re to have freedom, Re we must have truth, and that's the only way that you can apply justice. Can we please talk about some real problems as I've been elected to this house enthusiastically? Want to make Florida a better place, and this is what you bring me. No, I'm not voting for this bill, and quite honestly, half of y'all don't want to vote for it either. So whenever this legislature wants to actually be grown-ups and talk to each other honestly, Rep. Chambliss, then, Rep. Chambliss. then we'll have a better state of Florida. Until then, man, we're playing games. Rep. Chambliss, thank you. Okay, so, <laughs> you know... Uh, that was another idealist right there that you just heard of. <laughs> he was Kevin Chambliss, you know. But you, but I think the reality, frankly, it's not going to make any difference. The reality is, Florida's going to pass. They're going to pass this law. They're going to pass laws to restrict the teaching, the speaking, the training of America's history. And uh, all it's going to do is perpetuate how bad it is right now. It will. Ignoring it ain't going to make, ain't going to stop it. Because there are a whole lot of people in Florida that are diverse. And they're not going anywhere. Okay, well, that's that. All right. Um, I, uh, I've got a very quick little piece here about uh, the first black lawyer in Minnesota. Uh, this is a man named Frederick L. McGee. He was Amer Minnesota's first African-American lawyer. I'm going to give you a little bit from the St. Paul Historical Society, a little piece written by Jane McClure on uh, February 4th of 2022. Um, this man, Frederick McGee, was born into slavery. In 1861, his parents were enslaved, and he grew up initially enslaved. Um, but then he went on to become um, one of the most acclaimed lawyers of his time. Uh, he began practicing law in um, uh, Chicago, and then he moved to St. Paul, and where he became in 1885, around 1885, the first black lawyer in the state. Um, he also holds that same first distinction for Tennessee and Illinois. He was a highly sought out, skilled and sought after attorney. And, and um, he's known for winning clemency from President Benjamin Harrison for a client who was a black soldier. The soldier was false, falsely accused of a crime. 
The thing about Frederick McGee is that he was one of the founders of an organization called the Niagara Movement um, in 1905. He and and um, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and others founded the Niagara Movement, and that was the predecessor to the NAACP. Um, he was also – McGee was also a Republican and the chosen elector for Minnesota in 1892. But then uh, white Republicans objected to him being an elector and he switched parties t- to be a Democrat. So I just uh, – there's going to be – and I'll tell you if I have any lawyers here, this is certainly relevant. But I don't know if non-lawyers can be involved. But the Minnesota State Bar Association, the Hennepin County Bar and the Ramsey County Bar Association are doing a presentation about Frederick McGee on February 28th. At noon, um, the presenter is going to be an author by the name of Paul Nelson who wrote a book titled Frederick L. McGee, A Life on the Color Line, 1861 to 1912. Uh, McGee died just 50 years old. But um, I just wanted to point that out. Um, something to know about Frederick L. McGee, the very first black lawyer in Minnesota. All right. We're going to take a break. Uh, I see we've got a couple of callers. When we come back, we'll take those calls. That would be great. Okay. We'll be back. You're listening to me. Ellie Tuporno Radio on lovely AM 950. I have a caller. I've got uh, Lynette from Chaska. Lynette, are you there? I am here, Ellie. Are you there? I am here. Chaska, <laughs> Chaska is next door to where I live in Victoria. How are you? I Well, I'm, I'm hanging in there. But I wanted to let you know how much I do appreciate your show. And I wanted to read something really quick. And it's just a couple sentences. Um, it's about truth. Uh, when what is said is true, there is a ring to it that is like no other sound. It is a real sound, an actual sound, a sound that makes one's head turn. But its substance is spiritual, beyond the sense fences, the walls and the clatter that hide so much. And that is from Michael Nesmith's book, Infinite Tuesday. <laughs> And Love it. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that beautiful? Absolutely. And Absolutely. What you, what you do in your programs is bring out the truth, and it's just a joy to hear. And that's why I was like, because when you hear something that's false, doesn't, it just makes you cringe. You're like, because it's just it's like a yeah. sour note. Yeah. So, oh, Lynette, thank you. to hear the truth. So. Thank you for that. I, you know, I, thank you. I, I, I'm trying to do that, you know, to bring the truth to light. But also at the same time, not to create further division, you know, and um, and it's I think that it's important that we <laughs> we point out um, literally what's happening and where we're going. And, and we can't. Well, at any rate, thank well, you. And, and the sad thing is truth should be I mean, should I know truth really should be a uniter. It should be. Absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, just uh, I mean, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole because I don't have much time. But think of Vice President Pence yesterday saying that, you know, President Trump was wrong to say that Pence had the ability to, you know, change the election. Okay, that's truth. That's absolute truth. Mm -hmm. But think of the further division that that will create. I just I 
I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I never learned to fall in love with lies. Ever, ever since I was a kid, I would just sort of know. It would just feel wrong. Something felt wrong to me. We're like, something isn't, isn't real here. And I just am amazed how, I don't know why that isn't more popular, I guess, but apparently it isn't. Well, it doesn't sell. <laughs> that would be part yeah, of it. Yeah, I know. There's more money in lies. Hello, Fox News. Yeah. Well, listen, I really appreciate you calling, Lynette. Thank you so very much. And thanks for being a listener of LA 2.0 Radio. Well, thank you, Ellie, for doing your show. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Well, that that was refreshing. I really appreciate you, Lynette, and other listeners. And, and uh, it's always so great to hear from my listeners. I just don't ordinarily get to do that. Okay. Um, I've got about uh, oh, six minutes or so that I have left. All I want to do is very quickly highlight an NPR story that came down on February 2nd written by Sharon Pruitt-Young. Did you see this? About It's titled, A Butterfly Conservatory is Shutting Down Due to Right-Wing Harassment. The National Butterfly Center is in Mission, Texas. And they have a 100-acre kind of compound with trees, the trees of the kind that attract monarchs and other butterflies, okay? But it happens to be at a place where they want to build the wall. And they've had people coming in and cutting down their trees. These are people affiliated with right-wing kinds of things. And um, here's partly what the story uh, says. The, the conservatory has announced that it is closing for the immediate future. And here's what Sharon Pruitt-Young writes. The center, a nonprofit nature reserve nestled in the U.S.-Mexico border, unwittingly became the subject of conservative conspiracy theories and political conflict in recent years, having been locked in a year-long battle with the Trump administration and we build the wall uh, which is an organization trying to fund it privately regarding a planned border wall. The harassment grew so great that it led the director, the board of directors of the North American Butterfly Association to decide on Tuesday, that's this week, to close the center's doors. The safety of our staff and visitors is our primary concern, said Jeff Glassberg, the NBA, NABA's president and founder. We hope to reopen soon. But the poor butterflies. <laughs> I mean, really. I, un, you know, unbelievable. All right. I've got, uh, it looks like about three minutes to talk about my work, and I'm going to do it. So here we go. Um, uh, last week, I told you that I had put out on the Internet, on Twitter and on LinkedIn, um, my, an offer. An offer to every library in America that if they wanted a free copy of my book, I would make that happen. And I'd even pay for the postage. And you know what? Nobody took me up on the offer until yesterday and, well, Thursday as well. I now have – I'm really thrilled to report – I now have uh, five libraries in the U.S. and one in Pakistan. Uh, I've got to still figure out whether that's a legit uh, request. Ask him for my book. I cannot believe that my book would be legal in Pakistan, just to tell you. But, um, but, uh, and and you know what? Some of these requests are coming from like small towns, small towns in America, small town libraries, and I'm like, I'm thrilled about that. 
I'm just absolutely, absolutely thrilled. And so um, if you know librarians and if they'd like a copy of my book um, for free, I'll pay the postage. Um, please give them my email, lejkrug at gmail.com, and uh, we will do that. We'll send it off. I'll send it off. There is no we. It's just me. Well, me and Jack, but Jack the Golden Retriever is not uh, – he, he, he's still trying to figure out how to, you know, um, lick envelopes. <laughs> okay. One other thing. Uh, I'm continuing to do the work. I am. And, uh, you know, I, I found out about uh, communities of belonging uh, that are taking place in Carver County. Believe it or not, Carver County, uh, I'm learning – a lot of things about the county I, I live in now. But Carver County, its Department of Public Health has decided uh, that it would create this program about communities of belonging for people from diverse communities to give them a greater sense of, of living and of belonging in, in Carver County. Are you kidding me? Unbelievable. So I saw a, a wrinkle about that on the website for the uh, Victoria uh, City Hall contacted Department of Health, and to their credit, they emailed me back that day. I had an interview with them yesterday to learn more about the program. Uh, they told me a number of different things about what they're doing, including this thing called Living Room Conversations. Um, I'm hoping to become the Chaska, excuse me, the Victoria representative for this, uh, uh, this thing, uh, Communities of Belonging in Carver County. Stay tuned on that. Okay, well, listen, uh, we are getting to the end of the show. I need to give a big thanks to my uh, producer, um, Dan, because Dan is just um, doing great as my producer. I don't get to see him nearly enough, but I certainly love his professionalism. He is just kind of a rock star. And to you, my listeners, I'm just, you know, really incredibly um, thankful that you are part of this, that you are here. Lynette, thank you for calling again. And uh, next week, I will be live again. We're bringing in, hopefully, Ellen Kennedy from um, A World Without Genocide. It's an, a nonprofit organization working to end genocide in our world. And so hopefully um, she can make it and we'll have the big interview with her. And you'll be able to call in and ask her questions. Wouldn't that just be great, you know? So uh, listen. You got me for the next two Saturdays live, okay? So go out, make the world better, please, between now and next week. Um, and if you want to, call me and tell me about that, okay? Take care, be well, and thanks. <laughs>